What's up, everyone? This is episode number 65 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. All right, so my plan for today's show is to split this thing into two segments. In the first segment, I plan to tie up some loose ends and give you some updates on a few popular topics uh, that I've covered over the past year, including the Luca autograph controversy and some of the class action suits. And then in the second segment, I'm going to give some commentary on a hobby-related article that was featured this week in The Athletic. And I was one of many people that uh, was interviewed for the article, played a very small part in it, uh, but some of you have been asking me about that, so I want to um, at least talk about that a little bit. Now, it just so happens that both segments of today's show deal quite a bit with fraud in the industry, and I am very mindful of that. I'm not trying to put a, a damper on anything. Obviously, there's so much more to this hobby than fraud, and I hope that comes through when you listen to this show, and, and I have episodes like my conversation uh, with Adam last week, or when I talk to a player collector, or when I talk to someone about the inner workings of the industry, and so on and so on. Uh, however, as you guys know, there are some bad things that happen in our hobby. And I don't think that they have to ruin the hobby for us, but rather I think we need to inform ourselves, and then hopefully in doing so, we can navigate these things together. Okay, with that being said, let's jump in with a controversy that uh, really has been an interesting case study over the last year. I talked about this one all the way back in episode 14, and then I referenced it again when I chatted with Tone Stakes in episode 61. This is the Luka Doncic autograph controversy. And for those who haven't listened to those episodes, basically, there's a decent amount of people who believe that someone else is signing cards for Luka. And because his autograph is the word Lulu and looks feminine, a lot of those people then also believe that it's his mom that's signing this stuff, which really, you know, if, if it were someone else, it could be a girlfriend, it could be, I don't know if he has a, a sister, um, you know, there are a number of people that it could be, but um, it was, you know, very interesting to follow this for a while. I feel like at one point that um, Upper Deck was even using this as leverage against Panini, because after all of this came out, they made a point of showing photos and video of Lucas signing their new stuff for them. Um, and then Panini, despite being headquartered in the same city that Luca plays in at least 41 nights a year, they didn't do that, which was kind of strange. Um, so anyway, one of the main arguments of the uh, pro Luca signing group has been that Luca's official website had some sort of a deal where you could buy a shirt and you would get a signed uh, Luca 5x7 photo along with it and they guaranteed that these autographs were really signed by him and then they also posted a picture of him where he's signing some of them or at least there are some that are stacked in front of him. Um, I've seen some of these were slabbed and authenticated by Beckett already. Now on the other hand there are some detractors that have said well you know what if he signed a few of those and then someone else took over for him which is also what they think happened with some of the optic cards that were signed. So after all was said and done, the debate was never really resolved. I, could, I guess you could just say it died down for the time being until this week. 
And that's when a collector named Mike jump-started some of this chatter again when he posted his 5x7 Luca photo on social media. But his copy, uh, it was in a top loader, and it had the dreaded orange sticker on it from Beckett that says, did not pass. And it was accompanied by a letter that said, quote, On behalf of Beckett Authentication Services, we regret to report that one or more of your recently submitted autographs for encapsulation, in our opinion, is not authentic. And then they list some reasons or some potential reasons why it didn't pass. And there were some people out there that thought, well, you know, maybe it was just a reprint. Maybe that's why they um, they nixed it. But we're seeing a lot of that stuff now with other cards. Um, and, you know, if you saw my social media this week, you saw that people are even reprinting the Kevin Durant downtown inserts, which I thought I'd never see. However, this letter doesn't say anything about that. Instead, it talks about the slant of the autograph, the ink flow, um, and, and certain components such as that. So in other words, Beckett made it very clear that this is not a reprint, but in fact, someone signed it and they believe it was not Luca. Um, that doesn't mean the entire batch is bad. Uh, you know, that doesn't speak for all of the copies, but it definitely puts a new twist on things. So in other words, the saga is far from over. So expect to see more debating in the near future about this. Um, I like to see some of this play out. Now, I don't like it when I see people debating and they start name calling and they get really worked up about it. Um, But these are important conversations to have. And hopefully they encourage our card companies to be more transparent about their processes and to be more diligent in ensuring that athletes are actually signing their cards, or at least that we see some evidence that these athletes are signing their cards. All right, well, speaking of Panini and signing and authentication, we saw movement on several hobby-related class action suits in the last two weeks. So I'm going to go over those real quick in the order that I covered them in my episodes. I've tried to go through a lot of the legal PDFs and interpret them to the best of my ability. Um, To help me with that, I will be heavily relying on Paul Lesko's Twitter account, I've mentioned him multiple times before. If you're into some of these class action cases or any hobby-related legal stuff, Paul is a must-follow. And um, as a side note, he's also doing something that's kind of fun on Twitter right now where he's doing a bracket-style tournament for hobby annoyances. Um, I, I think this week Scotch Tape was paired up against something else and people had to vote on it. So that was kind of fun. So you might want to check that out too. All right, so there are two main cases that I want to give you updates on today. The first one is Panini's redemption lawsuit that I talked about in episode number six. And this whole thing was very complicated, but essentially a collector filed a class action um, case against Panini because they were using redemptions as a sort of bait and switch. They promised certain autograph cards and some of them never came to be. And then these card, a lot of these cards were expiring and Panini's selling some of the boxes on their website after the redemptions inside have expired. It was all a big mess. There's more to it, but if you want to hear about that, you can go back and listen to episode six. Um, we weren't sure what would come of this, but a lot of people were hoping that the, this concept of equal value, you know, meaning when you have to replace something and they say, we'll give you something of equal value, a lot of times their definition of equal value And then the collector's definition doesn't always line up. So we were hoping that would be debated in the courtroom. Uh, There was also fear that redemptions might go away entirely and lead to something even worse. 
being more panini points. Well, uh, it looks like for the time being, neither one of those is going to happen. Last Thursday, Panini's motion to dismiss was granted, which makes the lawsuit dead for the time being. And according to Paul, it could come back should the plaintiffs choose to refile, but we don't know if that's going to happen. Um, So we still don't have a ruling that says redemptions are legal or not. We've waited a year for this, and it was a little disappointing to see nothing really come of it. So hopefully, though, it's not completely dead. We'll see. Um, Case number two that I want to update you on is one that I talked about in episode 51. This was a class action suit that revolved around trimming and was filed against PSA, PWCC, and Probstein. And if you remember, this was jam-packed full of accusations, including a RICO component that basically said a lot of these guys were in cahoots with one another. And my, my personal opinion, I voiced it back then, uh, it hasn't changed, was that the plaintiff probably bit off a little more than they can chew. But at the same time, I hoped I was wrong. Well... We still haven't heard from PWCC or Probstein yet, but last Thursday, PSA filed its motion to dismiss that included several main defenses. The first being that the plaintiff never specified if he owned altered cards that had been graded by PSA. Uh, In other words, he wasn't actually, he didn't clarify if he had been hurt by them. Um, And then... The second defense was that the plaintiff never provided any real evidence of people conspiring together to make all of these quote-unquote horrible things happen. Now, there was one funny tidbit in there that Paul had quite a bit to say about. That was the fact that PSA actually called themselves the victims when someone alters a card. And their reasoning was that they have to compensate consumers who were the recipients of their incorrect opinion. So there you have it. PSA says that they are the real victims here. Anyway, hopefully we get the missing information from the plaintiff in the form of an opposition soon. As far as I know, there haven't been any collectors to join him in the class action suit. I'd like to see if they can tighten their case up a bit and keep this moving. I'll try to keep you guys updated. But once again, Paul Lesko is on top of all this stuff. He should be your first source for updates. Okay. Uh, Let's move into the main segment of today's show, which involves an article that actually talked a little bit about that last lawsuit I covered. This is an article by Katie Strang that was featured in The Athletic this week and was titled, How a Scandal Unfolded and Shaped the Battle for Card Collecting Soul. For those of you that are not familiar with The Athletic, it's a subscription-based sports website that covers both college and pro teams in a number of different markets across the country. Um, They also do national stories. It's grown quite a bit over the last couple years and uh, proved that people are willing to pay for news content if it's quality content. Um, A lot of times they're focusing more on uh, longer quality pieces instead of just a bunch of quick clickbait stuff to to try and, and get the advertisers to pay. Because there are, as to my understanding, there are no ads on here. Anyway, I don't have any affiliation with them. I don't have a subscription Um, But that is what I've observed about The Athletic. Um, Today I want to run through some of the main points of that article and then give some of my thoughts along the way. I encourage you to read the entire thing if you can. If you want access to it in full, um, there is the option for a free 7-day trial on The Athletic website. 
I think it's also made its way to the blowout forum, so you should be able to find it there if you look hard enough. But uh, I am not allowed to distribute this article in full, so you're going to have to dig a little bit. Um, okay, as I mentioned in the intro, I was interviewed for this article, among others. Um, you know, I played a very small role in it. Um, several of you already reached out and asked how that came to be, so I, I do want to talk about that first. Um, Katie had been talking to some other people in the hobby already, and she wanted to know more about some of the fraud that's going on in general, um, and, and some on the basketball side, so they recommended my name to her, and she reached out, so... I think our first conversation on the phone was maybe an hour and a half or even two hours. We exchanged a couple of emails after that. Um, We had one final short phone call to square some of the uh, finishing touches up at the end, and and then that was it. Um, A lot of what we talked about was used to provide context for her. And um, I was very impressed with all the content that she had consumed coming in because, as you guys know, our hobby has a very steep learning curve and it seemed like she had a really she had established a really good understanding of what was going on and a lot of the terminology in the hobby in a short amount of time so that just shows me that she was really really diligent with this um, I feel like some of the other mainstream exposure that we get that comes from guys like Darren Ravel you know he does a good job maybe of introducing people to things that are going on but I don't think he necessarily understands the ins and outs of the grading situation all that well. Um, but anyway, um, you know this this article was from Katie. After our first conversation, I didn't really know what route she was going to take with the article. We talked about um, you know trimming and patch swapping and message boards and uh, PSA and grading and BGS. I mean, she could have taken a number of different approaches to this. Um, And then when we talked the last time, she told me that some of my stuff was going to bookend the whole thing, which caught me a little bit off guard. Um, A large part of that was that she wanted to help humanize the people that are part of the hobby. and, And she felt that my background and kind of the reasons why I'm in the hobby fit that role. So that means a lot to me, Um, not just that she used my story, but that she was trying to humanize the hobby in general, because sometimes uh, when hobby controversy is talked about in the mainstream, you know, we escape this whole thing and it's just all all our dirty laundry has been aired. But I I don't feel like that was the case here. So what did she actually talk about? And that's what I want to run you through now. So this article opens by talking about the night that I discovered the altered Steph Curry uh, 16 out of 99 RPA. You guys know those details already. I've talked about that in several episodes, and Katie actually listened to some of those in the course of researching for this article. And um, when we were on the phone and um, we were chatting, she asked me, what she said, what's the most exciting altered card that you've dealt with? And Uh, I wanted to be very careful about things and discourage her from labeling these discoveries as exciting because I I try to look at things this way and it's very similar to sports and winning and losing. Every time you get excited about something like this, you have to realize that that excitement comes at the expense of someone or something on the other side, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe they brought it on themselves but it's still, it still, it comes at their expense. 
So whether it's a person that actually did the altering, whether it's someone that purchased the card and later found out, um, or as I talked about earlier, there's even a component where PSA and BGA, BGS might feel like victims for grading these cards. You have to be sensitive about these matters. Um, so while I didn't label the Curry situation as exciting necessarily, uh, it was definitely the most interesting case I've come across. So that's, that's the way I explained it to her. And um, I haven't seen anything play out in the same way. And so we talked about that. She listened to the podcast. She'd seen the threads. I, I think she appreciated the fact that I was able to have a civil conversation with the card's owner later on. And she followed up that introduction by saying, quote, to understand revelations of fraud that have largely been exposed by a group of diligent researchers on the card collecting message boards, one must understand the nuances of the hobby itself and the sanctity of the cards these enthusiasts are toiling to protect. So I really appreciated that because it goes along with this underlying theme all throughout the article that these are more than just pieces of cardboard to some people, uh, even so much to where she used the word sanctity. So uh, she then talked about the presence of trim cards in the hobby and how grading companies have played a role in that, whether they you know, meant to or not. She explained the process of resubmitting. She talked about how um, there are concerns about people receiving a a disproportionate number of high grades. Um, You know, you guys know some of that stuff, but remember, she's trying to reach a wider audience. Uh, And she then segues back to why all of that context is important. And I thought this was a good quote, so I'm just going to read it word for word. Um, She said, quote, All of this underscores what is at the heart of the scandal that began in the summer of 2019 and is still uh, roiling the card-collecting community. A fundamental tension between purists who want to see the integrity of the hobby preserved and those out to enrich themselves by exploiting a system with myriad vulnerabilities. And then she continued, As one collector described it, as one veteran collector described it, it is a battle for the soul of the hobby. End quote. Now, for the record, I, that wasn't me. I don't know who she's quoting there, but I think that's an interesting way to phrase it. The battle for the soul of the hobby. Uh, when you hear that, you might even think that she's talking about collector and investor because you, you've heard a lot of that chatter lately. But she's talking about it um, from a dif- different sense here in, in terms of the enthusiast and then the people are, that are exploiting cards. Um So there's some talk then in the article about the message board community and how a lot of the people there have worked together to keep preserving the hobby. She brings Keith Olbermann in uh, and talks about some of his baseball cards and why he collects. And I I, I felt that um, by including Keith, it allowed Katie to do two things really well. Number one, it brought someone onto the scene that has some name recognition and some credibility in known circles because your average ESPN viewer should know Olbermann. And then number two, it helps to further humanize things a bit when he talks about the magic of cards. And when he, when he says the magic of cards, he describes that as follows, quote, it's the ability to imagine. In other words, it's that invocation of history, whether it's baseball history, your own baseball history, or your own history punctuated by baseball, it can be invoked by these relics. And I think that sums things up really well. Uh, we can narrate both sports history 
in our own history with these cards. And, and that's really why I chose Wax Museum for the title of this show. Um, you know, obviously there is the, the double meaning with wax as in like unopened boxes, right? Uh, um, unopened packs. But um, it was meant to be a recorded history of both cards and life. From there, uh, Katie uses Olbermann's story to put the spotlight back on the communal aspect of the hobby. And she writes, quote, There are some purists out there, people like Olbermann, who feel the emergence of grading companies and slabbing, or encasing a card with a grade, has eroded the exact type of interdependence and community that made the hobby special. Uh, and then Olbermann said, Slabbing erased the need to interact. I thought that was interesting. You know, I, I never thought about that because I, I really, um, you know, I, I started in the mid to late 90s and grading had started by then, even though I wasn't familiar with it. So I, when he says it, it eliminated the need to interact, you know, you have to think about guys that are at shows. They're trying to figure out if cards are mint, near mint, you know, poor, very good. And, and it's just, it's guys going back and forth and they're having to have that conversation and discuss the different qualities of the card. And he's saying, well, now that we have the third party and grading companies, that aspect of it is gone. And that's something I really hadn't considered a lot before because, uh, number one, I don't really do the whole grading thing a whole lot. Although I, I did have my first submission. I'll be detailing that soon. But, um, you know, it's, it's just not something that ever really crossed my mind. So I thought that was interesting where he talks about it. It erases the need to interact. Um, she then moves on and talks about a 52 Mantle card that was on the blowout forums. I think it was talked about on the Net54 forums as well. And um, she talks about how this card caused people to question a number of other cards, which then led to an FBI investigation into PWCC. And PSA, and that was originally reported by different news outlets in August of 2019. So um, she posed the question, what is currently known about the investigation into PWCC and PSA? And a lot of that is a mystery, but um, what she was able to dig up, supposedly Brent is cooperating. And um, quick, uh, a funny little side story here during the course of, of her uh, conversation with me. I didn't talk to her a lot about PWCC or PSA because she already had other, um, basically better sources for that. I did, however, casually mention to her that I said, you know, Brent's lawyer was very critical of PWCC prior to defending him. And she said, oh, trust me, I know. Let me read this quote for you that I got. I talked to him the other day. Um, and we got a good laugh out of that. So here's the quote because it was in the article. So I'm going to share that with you guys. This is from Brent's lawyer. He said, Brent, because a lot of the things he did publicly, the videos he made, some of them were not taken well by the hobby for good reason. And I felt the same way became a very punchable face. Um, now at the same time, she got some other really good quotes from him that explain why he chose to represent Brent. And I encourage you, you know, read the full article if you have the access and the time and you can uh, read up on those. Um, anyway, so PWCC, you know, for, for all that's, that was said there, PWCC is at least cooperating. So kudos to them for that. 
it's not immediately clear if PSA is as well. She noted in the article that um, its CEO, Joe Orlando, did not return calls. Now, that's funny to me. Well, really, for a number of reasons. You guys know I'm a big fan of Joe. But um, his fingerprints were all over another article from The Athletic the week before. That talked about the 25 most iconic cards. There were all sorts of quotes. He was sharing it on social media. And now a national reporter from the same company wants a little insight into a story that, you know, he's very involved with. And we get the return of Iso Joe, our favorite character in the grading game. Um, She did at least reference his infamous never get cheated letter where he talked about the human side of grading. So, and I didn't, I didn't point that out to her. So she got that from someone. Like I said, she was very thorough. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that that was included in there. Never get cheated is one of my favorite quotes. Um, All of that is to say, though, we don't have a lot of public information about this FBI investigation or its current status. Now, I am going to jump in and add this in. This wasn't in the article, but there was a relevant post from Ken Golden of Golden Auctions on the blowout forums this week regarding federal activity. I feel like that's worth sharing. So I'm going to read that for you real quick. He said, The forum did a tremendous service for the hobby. While on the subject, just because you don't see immediate action, doesn't mean the FBI is not working on it. I can tell you at last year's National, Brian Brosokis issued a subpoena to all the auction houses, including Golden, regarding consignments and purchases by people they suspected were involved. Um, Sometimes things take time. Two plus years ago, I was asked to help in an autograph fraud case. It took time and the matter recently reached a positive outcome. End quote. So the big thing to take from that is that everything takes time to play out. And I think articles like this one are needed to make sure things keep moving. Uh, But just because we haven't seen anything play out publicly does not necessarily mean that nothing is happening behind the scenes. And no matter where you stand on the issue, I think we should all want to see this thing play out. If PWCC and PSA are in fact innocent, which, you know, who knows, they might be, uh, an investigation will help them clear their names. If they're not, then it helps move this thing to the next step. All right, back to the article, though. Um, Towards the end of the article, Katie talked about how some collectors are calling for a centralized database that records serial numbers and makes cards easier to track. Uh, It shouldn't be a surprise that one of those people is me. She notes that PSA, Beckett, and Panini were all contacted about any attempts to catalog data for tracking purposes, even internally, and the only response that she got was from BGS. Now, what she didn't mention in the article was that uh, Jeremy Murray at BGS essentially gave her the runaround. She asked if there was a tool to track serial numbers, and he replied with a link. Well, first off, it required an account, but he replied with a link that allows you to track Beckett Slab certification numbers, which technically are called serial numbers. Now, you and I both know that he knew exactly what she was asking, but he used technicalities to kind of try and get around the issue. It's this type of stuff that helps paint a picture of the people that are involved with these companies. I'll let you form your own opinions, 
But anyway, I worked with her to provide a follow-up question for him, and he confirmed that they do not have an online tool that helps track serial numbers. So at this point, the article winds down and Katie comes back to uh, my collecting story and my history on the blowout forums. She gives the podcast a shout out, which I really appreciate. She talked about how cards and sports in general have helped me connect with people over the years. This includes other collectors online. Um, She writes, quote, that communal affinity for sports and the nostalgia it provides is the nexus of his connection to the card collecting community. Um, Now, it was at this point in our conversation on the phone where she asked me, it was a really good question, how can you trust someone online you've never met? Because she knows I'm working with some of these people um, and have developed friendships with some of these people. And I explained it to her this way. I said, look, I've posted on the blowout forum um, over 6,000 times. And um, then there were thousands of other posts on other forums before that. Some people have been there the whole time. Some people haven't. Uh, You know, some of those posts are, you know, better quality than others. Imagine if you wrote someone 6,000 small notes. Some of them may be a sentence long. Some of them a lot more elaborate. Over time, um, if they're in this for the long haul, and they read the majority of those 6,000 notes, or at least a, a, a portion of them, they're going to pick up on your sense of humor. They're going to pick up on the things you're interested in. They're going to pick up on the things that upset you, and so on and so on. Now, for some of you, that might extend now to Instagram or other social media. Your personality, and there are traits about you that come out in the, the things that you post. You know, I don't have to make a post that says I'm interested in Pacers cards. You can scroll through my my account or my other account, my original one, Deadshot's cards. You can scroll through that and see, hey, this guy really likes Pacers cards. So, you know, maybe even those of you that have listened to me for 65 episodes now, this being the 65th, you might feel like you know me in a way, even if we've never met. That doesn't mean you know me perfectly. That doesn't mean you would trust me to um, watch over your banking passwords, but there is some level of trust. And as as she quoted in the article, I told her, with anyone you trust, there's a leap of faith. And with that, she closes by talking about how collectors will keep working together to try and help one another out and weed out some of the bad happenings in the hobby that we love so much. All right. So I gave a lot of my thoughts as I went through there. I I tried to make it as linear as I possibly could. Um, I do have a couple of thoughts I want to close with. First off, thank you to Katie for reaching out to me and and more importantly, listening. Um, But then thank you for taking the time to give this subject the respect it deserves. I've mentioned this before. Our hobby has a very steep learning curve, and she was diligent enough to tackle some of the components that can, at times, make my head spin. Um, I want to also thank Katie for showing the human side of our hobby and trying to convey the importance these cards have to us. Um, They narrate sports history, but sometimes they even narrate our lives. Uh, And then I want to thank Katie for keeping this story circulating. I talked about the importance of that earlier. 
it's easy to think that um, this will all kind of fizzle out during all the COVID stuff. But I think something like this and this kind of national exposure can really help keep things moving. You know, a lot of us do want to see changes with the industries that are involved with our hobby or the companies that are involved in this industry, I should say. And um, sometimes it takes um, a different platform to make that happen. Okay, there you have it. You guys have heard enough from me. I would love to hear from you. It is your turn. Did you get a chance to check out the article this week? If so, what did you think? Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Wax Museum Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.